Hello and welcome to a special episode of Women With Balls, sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group. The UK is facing a housing crisis, hitting both buyers, renters and those who aren't in a position to live in a stable home. Factors such as rising mortgage rates and inflation mean that people are increasingly struggling to meet their housing costs, especially those on low incomes, and women disproportionately fall into that bracket. There's a number of reasons for this. Of all jobs that pay less than the living wage, 60% are held by women. Over the course of a woman's lifetime, her income can be seriously affected by taking time out to care for children or elderly relatives. Even in higher paid jobs, women still earn less than their male counterparts often. Joining me to discuss the housing crisis from a female perspective are Rachel McLean, Minister of State for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, Esther Dextra, the Managing Director of Intermediaries at Lloyds Banking Group, and Claire Miller, the Group Chief Executive for Clarion Housing Group. Thank you for all joining me today, ladies. Um, Claire, just to begin, as someone who obviously is working in the housing industry, Clarion, the UK's largest housing association, when we're talking about a housing crisis, what challenges are you seeing emerging at the moment? So it's particularly difficult at the moment, I think, um, and has been for some time. Um, We know that today in England, 4.2 million people are in need of a social home. And the vast majority of those have no prospect, realistically, of getting one um, anytime soon. That's particularly difficult for women and for women with children. We know that one in every six children is living, for instance, in an overcrowded home, and that's research by the National Housing Federation. So it's particularly difficult. We are living through a housing crisis. And what we must do as a country is build more homes of all tenures so that people can find safe and secure homes that are appropriate to their income levels so that they can afford to live in them. Now, Esther, in the introduction, um, clearly this is quite broad because we're talking about Buyers, renters, social housing, those, you know, currently, you know, struggling to get on the ladder as well. So I wonder if you could just explain to listeners how this is all interconnected when we're talking about, you know, these rising costs. Yeah, that, it's a very good point. It's all interconnected because you have a long waiting list for social housing, about 1.5 million households. That puts pressure on the private rented sector, and we've seen rents rising, not just from interest rates, but because more people need a house there. That then makes it more difficult for people to buy a house, because when you pay higher rents to save up for a deposit, it becomes more difficult. And with the interest rate rises as well, it's become more difficult for people to get a mortgage that's affordable. And that's particularly hard for women, because as we've just discussed, you know, lower incomes, there's a gender pay gap. So that makes it harder to get on any of the housing ladder. And Rachel, you have the privileged position of having to deal with many of these problems. Yes. <laughs> and that's 8.5 million people in the UK cannot access the housing they need at the moment. So I suppose from, from where you're sitting, have you seen things become worse? So I, I want to sort of start by agreeing with a lot of what's been said already. And also as someone who has had to take time out of work to raise my four children. And uh, I now have... A grandchild and another one on the way, which I'm not able to take time out of work to raise. But nevertheless, it is it is women who are the ones that deal with those caring responsibilities. And actually, in my case, also with older parents. So I kind of see it across the whole spectrum. 
Um, and I think where I would sort of start from looking at this is that housing, the reason why housing has become a problem, uh, which people have sort of set out why, is just... It, it's it's because of the affordability and it's because of the inflation that we're seeing across the whole economy, which is hitting everything from rents to mortgage costs to interest rates for uh, and, and costs for people to actually build homes. So this is putting pressure across the entire system. We were just discussing actually before we came on this podcast that there's no silver bullet or magic bullet to any of these problems. It all comes back to building more houses overall. And what's very important with that is that we think about how are we going to um, enable the economy to function properly and to get inflation down. So actually, when I think about housing, I think it think of it in the context of inflation and these other pressures across the economy. And you know, we are starting to see some positive movement on that. Obviously, there's a lot more to do. But it, you know, it, it would be ridiculous to suggest that it's been it's been straightforward and there haven't been challenges across the whole system. Claire, I suppose just picking up on. What Rachel said there, you know, the idea there's no you know, silver bullet. But some of these problems have been a, a long time in the making, haven't they? You know, prior to inflation, if you think about housing shortages. Absolutely. Um, the truth of the matter is we haven't been building enough homes in this country um, for many, many years. And I think there is broad political consensus around the need to build around about 300,000 homes a year. But we are nowhere near that. And of those 300,000 homes, 90,000 ought to be the cheapest, the social rented homes. Money spent on housing saves money in other public sector services. So, for instance, if you have a safe, secure home where you can bring up your family and achieve your life chances, the chances are you're going to be less of a burden on the education system, on the NHS. And we need to think creatively about how housing benefits the economy as a whole when we're discussing how best to increase supply. I agree with Claire that, um, you know, housing really determines the out, the quality of your housing determines the outcomes in your life. There is, uh, you know, evidence for that, the quality of your life and what you can attain. So that's really important. And we've asked as Lloyds Banking Group made a partnership with Crisis to pledge for building one million homes, so 100,000 a year in the affordable housing sector by convening and being more creative, getting different parties around the table, because housing is quite a complex and localised affair, so not one solution fits all, there's no magic bullet as we discussed so by convening different partners around the table to come up with solutions we think that should be uh, something to aspire to. Now I want to get back to Rachel's point about you know why women can be particularly affected and then talk about some solutions but just before we do Esther on renters Rachel was talking about inflation obviously we're seeing you know rising interest rates and just for just to kind of outline why renters are being particularly affected now we hear a lot about mortgage payments going up I'm sure it's something you'll see in people struggling to pay those and then a lot of the time it does result clearly in rents going up as a result that's correct right that is correct rents are going up uh, because the cost of you know for landlords for example who might have a mortgage their interest rates go up they might pass some of or all of that on inflation has gone up to maintain houses etc so that's why you see rents going up and there is more pressure on the private rented sector so there is just uh, that sector has grown significantly in the last 20 years.
houses because, yeah, there are less houses available in social housing, for example. And are you hearing much when you, you know, in your role from kind of obviously mortgage holders, but renters who are struggling as a result of this? It, it makes the whole cycle more difficult because when you pay more rent, it's more difficult to save for a deposit. And that's what you need when you want to go, when you want to move on to the housing ladder. And that's why we're looking at, you know, are there other options as well, like shared ownership, where you don't buy the entire property, but you buy part of the property. And Rachel, your government has obviously said it wants to strengthen renters' rights in various ways, but it does tend to get a little bit delayed. Um, what can we actually expect, do you think, in terms of those you know, strengthening rights for renters um, before yeah, the next I mean, election? Can I just pick up on a, a point that Claire made earlier, if that's OK? So, I mean, I, I do agree with Claire that uh, this country hasn't built enough homes for decades, actually. And that's governments of all colours. But I just want to just make it very clear that we are facing two things. First of all, our housing delivery is at a 30-year record high. So actually, despite everything and despite all the pressures, inflation, interest rates, etc., we are delivering homes. And I think we also have to look at this in the round. I mean, she's right to say that everything is connected, but we're also facing a rise in demand. Uh, for all sorts of reasons. So we're facing a rise in demand of people who need social housing. And the way that we deal with that is actually we need to build more homes overall because for every person uh, that is in a good position and can buy a new house and and trade up to a four-bedroom house, then they're freeing up stock that's further down the market, which is by definition more affordable. Um, So I think that it is always very important to look at this in the round. So Rachel, your government's spoken a lot about helping renters, been being promised more rights for renters, protections for landlords, but it's often delayed. Um, what can we actually expect ahead of the next election? So we have said in our manifesto, we're still committed to this, to uh, banning the Section 21 evictions, which are, actually do affect women more often because these are some of these retaliatory evictions. But we have to do it balancing with the, the very severe pressures that are on landlords at the moment. So we are taking a bit of time to get it right, to make sure that when we introduce some measures, we don't destabilise the market and we don't see uh, landlords leaving the market because that isn't going to help anybody. It's certainly not going to help renters and the young people that we want to help. Now, let's talk specifically about uh, some of the top parts we've already raised about why women are particularly effective when it comes to the housing crisis, which we've just you know, gone into the various aspects of. And then I want to get to some of the potential solutions. Claire, why do you think it can be particularly gendered in terms of uh, the woman's, a woman's experience can, can be on the worse end of the scale? So I think, as we described earlier, women... Certainly the experience of um, women living in Clarion Housing Association homes is that they are more often likely to be in lower paid jobs. They are more often likely to be in part-time jobs and they are more often likely to be lone parents. I know that um, within our accommodation, we've got two-thirds of our households headed by a woman as the principal um, tenant. And so if you bring all those things together, it just makes it much more challenging. And if you look at the experience of women in recent years during covid We find that many of our residents were in employment where they weren't able to work from home. 
they were in caring roles or they were working in retail or hospitality. They had to leave home in order to continue to um, get employment and to continue to support their families. And that has had a very significant um, knock-on effect in what our residents are now telling us about their anxiety levels, their mental health, and their overall resilience in terms of facing into the current cost of living crisis. So for a number of reasons, it's been tougher for women, I think, particularly those who are living in social housing. And Claire, I think that is um, to add on that, because you're right, women work in those types of categories, uh, retail, leisure, etc. And during COVID, those jobs were more impacted and therefore they had less ability to save. So a lot of other people uh, and a lot of men in this instance had jobs where you had less cost and therefore more ability to save, which of course has provided a nice cushion in the cost of living crisis, whilst for those women it was harder and they didn't have that opportunity. Esther, from your role where you are, are you what kind of things are you hearing when it comes to, I suppose, women particularly struggling with the housing crisis? Is it the fact that they don't have the savings? Uh, is it, I mean, one thing we haven't yet got onto is, of course, you know, if a, you know, something the government's been looking at, which is support for women when they have to leave a relationship, um, then they're particularly vulnerable if they don't have somewhere to go. Yeah, so it's tougher for women. Uh, it's tough for women to get onto the housing ladder partly because of the pay gap, so to save up for that deposit, to prove affordability uh, in terms of income to buy that house, so that's harder. Like we discussed as well, they quite often have caring responsibilities, which gives you less options, because if your child is in a school or you have a certain support infrastructure around you to take care of children because it's tough like we discussed when you have to work and balance that with childcare. you don't always have the options to move to cheaper areas or otherwise and you need a certain amount of space so those all are factors that make it more difficult um, so Rachel if we're talking about obviously I think the entire panel agrees on is a lack of housing a lack of affordable homes and therefore we're probably going to get more disagreement is what is the correct solution to that um, so what can the government do to increase supply and find ways to fast track I suppose the more vulnerable groups mm-hmm. um, you hear Labour talking about you know more social housing something Michael Gove has also you know spoken positively about who leads your department um, what do you think can be done there? Well, we are committed to social housing and anybody in the social housing sector will know about the very significant amount of uh, public money that's been put, something like £11.5 billion uh, in the latest sort of round, which is all going to the housing associations to help them. Because, of course, let's be clear, uh, social housing can't be built without support from the taxpayer. So if you're suggesting build more social housing at a cost of £11.5 billion, which is what we're spending, if you want to do more of that, you have to really be very clear about where you're going to take that money from so that you can balance the books which Labour have said they want to do. So there are no magic solutions here. We are committed to social housing and actually we've got a pretty good record. Um, we've, I think it's something like 632,000 we've delivered since the Conservatives have been uh, in coalition or in government since uh, 2010. Uh, and that funding is going to Claire and others to help them keep rents low for those people, to house those vulnerable people, and also to upgrade the properties. Because 
unfortunately, there are, there are people in that sector who've not done a good job for their tenants and have let them down uh, and have provided, yes, the homes are affordable, but they're in a terrible condition and they're afflicted with damp and mould. So that's where the government, again, has stepped in to raise the quality because we have to have decent safe and warm homes for people. So I think it's really important that we recognise what's been done. And I think what I'd also say on women as well, and I do, you know, I do agree with the economic realities that face women, but I would also want to be very clear, that's why we've done a lot of things in this government, such as raise the minimum wage, which women are often earning, such as take people on lower incomes out of income tax so they're not paying in, all the childcare reforms we've done, and then there's a whole multitude of different benefits for people... Uh, available to help them with the cost of living, help them with their energy bills, and these are going to women. Um, so I think these are really important and practical interventions, and that's before we've even talked about the benefit system, which a lot of people also um, are accessing. So we always have to keep that in mind when we're making those interventions and putting public money behind helping anyone that's vulnerable. Yeah, so I agree with what the minister is saying, but the need that we are facing is now so extreme. So, yes, I am, you know, always very grateful for um, government support for the work that we do. And over the last five years, Clarion has built nearly 10,000 new homes. But it's a drop in the ocean compared to the need. If I give you an example, um, just by charging subsidized rents last year, we saved our residents and the benefit system £540 million. Pounds. And, you know, whilst government support for building new homes has been increasing and the level of grant going into rent and shared ownership has also been increasing, I would still argue that given the needs that we face as a country, more is required. And I think we need a real dialogue about what is a fair housing market because there are people who have uh, houses and have uh, surplus bedrooms and then there are people where there's overcrowding, find it really difficult. And, you know, I think as a society, we need to ask ourselves what is fair. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I think that, uh, as I said at the beginning, it's very difficult, even in 30 minutes, to talk about the whole system. Because we, I would agree with Claire that we need to build more housing overall. Because building more housing, driven by the private sector, uh, through the 106 agreements and the other contributions that developers have to make, is how we get more affordable housing built. So we have to stimulate the whole market. Um, I'm sure you've all uh, listened to and read Michael Gove's speech uh, at the end of July about long-term plan for housing, which was very clear. We need to reform the whole system, uh, right from granting planning permission and having uh, a very sensible conversation with local authorities about how much we expect them to build in their area. And, uh, you know, you'll look at... It's very interesting to me to see some of the opposition parties, the way they talk about this, because they're very happy to say, uh, when they come on, you know, the media, etc., Labour are very happy to say, and it maybe even the Liberal Democrats as well. Oh, we should build on the Green Belt, we should build more houses. But I can tell you for a fact, who is campaigning against development in so-called Green Belt? Not even Green Belt, but Green Space. They are campaigning against it in their own areas. Then they are accusing us of uh, caving into NIMBYs. But the facts are that we have actually had housing being developed. If you turn it into this debate about NIMBYs versus everybody else, I'm afraid you're going to get nowhere. That is not a very intelligent way of actually thinking about this issue. I suppose on that, one of the, one of the problems, Richard, is, I mean, 
as you say, lots of parties talk bold, including the Tories. Uh, if you think about that manifesto, you know, about their big plans to shake up the planning system. Uh, Which you know, we are actually doing, yeah. by the way. But it's initially, going through the laws now. Yeah, of course. But initially, if you think about what Robert Jenrick said when he was in, you know, head of the department you're currently in you know there was it was a more radical proposal that was then toned down because they you know disagree with mps so it feels as though every party once you get to you know a point of power is gonna you know you, if you can't perhaps with a majority of 80 do some of the things you know leaders say you want to do it probably points to the fact that most parties are going to struggle to push that through because it's one thing talking about you know big picture yeah. as soon as it comes close you know you can see it in terms of how certain parties fight by elections yeah of course <laughs> you know and people to have to be honest with the electorate yeah. so it's all very well to say mps are frightened of voters but this is how democracy works you know, we have to get voted in to make decisions both at the local level and into Parliament as well. And we have to be honest about that. Yes, it does involve trade-offs. But, you know, if people are suggesting that we build over the green belt, which we hear from Labour, I would like them to come out with a list of uh, sites in possibly Angela Rayner's constituency where she'd be happy to see building on the green belt, because I can tell you she and others have been campaigning against it locally. I, I do understand all the frustrations um, and the difficulty of planning decisions in a, at a local um, place. But I think, from my experience, most people are in, understand the need for new homes, but what they're anxious about is that those homes won't be accompanied by the necessary infrastructure in order for people not to become a burden on places um, without having appropriate schools, GP surgeries, and all the things that are required in order to create thriving communities. And from an organization like my own, which has been around for about 125 years, we have some expertise in building new communities, and we know what is required in order to make them successful for the long term. And to be honest, the relationships I have with my residents are forged over decades. So we know what is needed for those communities to be successful, for women to lead economically active lives, and for us to be able to support them to improve their life chances. So, you know, I think there's a lot of different things here that need to go into the mix. But I wouldn't say generally that people are against housing. What they're against is the burden that it might play on inadequate infrastructure that already exists. If I can just come back on that, yeah. uh, because that's th that that is something that is often said to me. Um, it doesn't it doesn't sustain contact with reality on the ground because the truth is that the planning system already does require infrastructure to be built. Uh, as long as those local areas are actually getting their plans up to date, some of them are not because they've all campaigned against development and then they've all got in on the basis of campaigning against every single development. That's when we see that speculative development, which is very damaging. But the government's guidance is very clear that we need to have that infrastructure. And that is what is delivered by well-run local authorities where they're taking those things seriously. And actually, there is a very, there's a huge amount of work that goes into making sure that happens. But we are strengthening even further. We are introducing some new measures which will ensure we get that infrastructure delivered up front. So yes, it has been quite a long time in the making, Katie, and you're right to say that this started out with Robert Jenrick, but these are very serious, com very complicated reforms that have to be scrutinised by Parliament. That's why it has taken a while, but it is now in the House of Lords, and we should start to see that flowing through soon.
Now, before we get into a few more solutions, I've got about five minutes left. Um, I wanted to just, um, just one thing, Claire, actually, Esther, perhaps we could start with you. You know, I want to talk about social housing. And one of the things is, you know, when we're talking about the women's perspective, Claire, Esther, you can decide who answers this one. But a lot of it's how social housing is designed. And I wanted, you know, do you think um, we have in the past on this po- podcast when we had Thang and Devon, I mean, she was in the shadow housing role. She was saying that one of the issues is often it, it isn't des- designed for the women in mind. And I wonder if that's something you thought was perhaps changing when you think about caring responsibilities, or, you know, h- how that should be taken into account. So we spend a, a great deal of time um, talking to our residents about how we design our new homes. And actually the new homes that we are building, I think, are are suitable for social housing for today. But the truth of the matter is I've got 125,000 homes built over many decades, many of which require investment to bring them up to today's standards. Um, the oldest homes that I still manage were built in 1900. And of course, we've acquired homes that were built even before that. Um, and they just aren't suitable as social housing today. They require significant investment. My challenge and difficulty in providing that investment, of course, is that rents are controlled within our sector for very good reasons. But the investment requirements, therefore, have no income stream to pay for them. And that is a massive challenge. The government have very recently um, said that the affordable housing program can be used for estate regeneration. And, you know, I am delighted with that. And I hope that we will benefit from some of that investment in future years. But up until now, the likes of Clarion and all charitable housing associations have been entirely dependent on our own charitable resources in order to improve those homes, which has made it very difficult to do. And I sympathise with Claire. It is very difficult when you have to keep the oldest housing stock in Europe up to date before you invest in new that's suitable for, you know, the current living conditions, you know, single household families, etc. But you have to bring there for multiple parties together. So you have to, you know, involve the private sector to support social housing, because that's how you can come up with viable propositions that make sense. That's how you can build proper communities. And actually, there are some examples where that includes the a good environmental outcome as well, because you invest in all of those parts uh, in one go. And Rachel, on that, do you think there can, there can be some more opportunities ultimately for the private sector to help with some of these issues? 100%. Um, totally. Yeah, we want to see the private sector taking a role. They are already. Uh, we, I think we've had conversations with, with yourselves, um, Esther, and we're very happy to have more because ultimately we know that there actually there is a role for the private sector to play. Um, we need to always think about all the priorities of government, which are vast and uh, ever-increasing. And so anything we can do to drive down the costs overall for people and and help them start with a a safe, warm house that doesn't then have those knock-on effects. And I think the other point really about housing and why it's so important uh, also for the private sector is because we know that um, labour mobility is currently hampered. I mean by that, that if you have got a better job somewhere else and you can't move house because there's a shortage of housing, it's sort of holding down your own opportunity to progress. So I'm really keen to do as much as we can um, to make sure that we really drive that issue on. 
And I've got a final question for everyone, but just before we do, Esther, we talked a bit about crisis, but do you think there's a role the private sector can play when it comes to the rental market as well in terms of? Absolutely. Lloyd's Banking Group is the biggest lender to the social housing sector and we've lent over £15 billion. It's a combined solution, so building more homes, not just for private ownership, but also for rent and therefore building high quality homes and improving the quality in that sector is critical as well and can neatly fit in that wider solution. Now, on this podcast, we usually end by, uh, on our one-on-ones by asking the worst advice people have ever been given. Now, I don't know how helpful that would be. If you want to give us the worst advice you've ever been given on housing, go for it. Um, but otherwise, I'm going to ask each of you to give uh, one piece of advice to you know, those listening who are right now struggling when it comes to renting, it could be buying, um, you know, what you would advise them to do if they're feeling a little bit hopeless. And we're going to start with Esther. I would say break it down in little steps. It can be really overwhelming, but we have said housing is so key to the outcomes in your life. And if you take little steps, you can progress. And one of those next steps could be that you contact your local bank for advice. Um, Claire? I think it's very difficult for a lot of women who are struggling with their housing needs. What I would say is there's also lots of advice and lots of support. Um, Organisations like my own provide huge amounts of advice on a range of different things, money guidance, routes into employment, training, childcare, all sorts of things that you might not think a housing association would give you advice on. So if in doubt, please do reach out to us. Rachel, you get the final word. And I would totally support what Claire's just said. Housing associations, and I know this from my own experience, not just in this role, but also my local constituency, they do play a really important role. uh, And they do really provide that safety net, I think, for people who who are going through tough times. Um, And I would say always contact your housing provider. If you're in the private rented sector, contact your landlord, uh, contact your local authority, because they do have a lot of powers to enforce some of the bad practices. Um, And also contact your um, job centre and um, your benefits provider as well, because these these services are set up to help you and with that thank you rachel esther and claire for your time today thank you